Welcome to For the Love of Safety, the show for you health and safety professionals out there, where hosts Justin and Jed talk about their experiences in this fun, frustrating, and rewarding field of occupational health and safety. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Safety. I'm Justin Claven. With me as always is Jed Crawford. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Kirsten Camp. She is the manager of health services for Textron Aviation. She's got 17 years experience as a nurse practitioner and she has a doctorate in nursing. Kirsten, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are, we're really excited um, to have you on. This is, this is going to be a lot of fun. So we wanted to talk about, in specific to this episode, we wanted to talk about EHS, Environment Health and Safety Departments, and then Occupational Health, the Occupational Health Department, and whether or not those departments should be or need to be combined. Are they connected? Are they relevant to one another? Do they fit into one another? Should they be combined? Should EHS fit under occupational health? Should occupational health fit under EHS? We have a lot of opinions on the matter here, and we want to flesh those out on that today's episode. We wanted to have a, a good conversation about our feelings around combining environment, health, and safety and occupational health departments and how we all feel about that. And um, as Jed said, we kind of, we all have our own opinions where that goes. I guess maybe one of the things that we should start with is is just the the fact that you know they're connected anyway right they they have some sort of uh, synergy that goes on especially when it comes to injuries and illness between the two I, I don't think that you can ever completely separate them because we have to work together no matter what right I agree with that yeah I, th- I think we would all agree with that and then if you don't mind Kirsten can you just maybe from your perspective, and your experience in education, you know, give us give us a breakdown on what occupational health is, because some of our listeners might not even realize it's a difference. Sure. So occupational health focuses literally on the health related to the job. So that might be um, injuries that are specific to whatever type of industry it is. That might be Uh, medical surveillance and understanding what types of unique exposures occur in a work environment. And then certainly there's also uh, a component of it that the goal is really to help the worker get back to work in their optimal capacity, right? So it's good for the business and good for the uh, worker as well, right? And so there is the component even outside of Uh, injuries that occur at work, also those people that still get sick in everyday life, right? People still have injuries outside of work. They still have chronic illnesses to deal with and helping them get well enough to be able to do their job and to continue working. So it crosses over the line of, I think a lot of people think it just has to do with injury at work, and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So from what I'm hearing, you know, you you certainly care about driving down compensability, you know, whether that's recordable or not, you, we, we, you drive down compensability, no matter what, no matter what uh, form the injury or illness comes into or comes in. But you also, like you just said, just so I can reiterate this to the listeners, you know, you care about their health their overall health, you know, health is important outside of work, not just inside of work, right? Yes. And, 
you know, I think we tend to lose um, sight of that maybe in our day to day, but ultimately not are we not only are we trying to keep people healthy enough to remain at work, but we also want them healthy enough in their work environment that they can go home and have their life outside of work. That's so important, right? So it's keeping them safe and healthy and protecting them as best we can and doing what we can to make sure that they could get home, right? Well, so all of that was talking about, you know, wanting Kirsten to give an idea, a definition to the listeners uh, of what occupational health is, just in case there was somebody who didn't know what it was. And so that's going to set up a segue, I think, then, because now we need to discuss or move into, you know, just conversationally, you know, why... Why do people think EHS and occupational health might be the same thing? Or, you know, what are what are some of the potential pitfalls where we get into why they shouldn't be combined? So we, we learned about occupational health. You know, it, it's it's more than just, yeah, I'm treating this injury. It's more than just compensability. It's 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 bigger than that. As Kirsten just talked about. So what does that look like in the workplace alongside of EHS? And we talked a little bit about this actually in our industrial hygiene episode with Nicole, where industrial hygiene um, very much is is connected with, with occupational health, especially when it comes from an exposure standpoint and trying to understand some of the trying to understand some of the symptoms that are there and some of the uh, some of the medical monitoring that has to take place in order to check for um, any type of biological uptake of some of these these chemicals and these um, agents that people could be working for, you know, I think about some stuff like chrome, stuff like lead, um, you know, and in that way, you kind of need to work hand in hand with them um, because as the health clinics are are checking them out for their physical, giving them the exposure information is critically important so that they understand maybe where some of these symptoms and some of these um, these other clues as to what's going on with this individual are, are coming from. Um, so in that regard, it's, it, you know, to me, it, there's just this natural synergy between the two departments where you have to work together. Uh, respiratory protection is another one, right? Whenever we want to fit somebody for a respirator, we need to make sure that they can do that. Industrial hygienists don't have the training, don't have the, the background to determine if this person can medically um, wear a respirator without you know, making some uh, medical condition worse. We need the occupational health um, department to get to that, uh, to, to go through that. I think where it gets muddied a little bit is when we talk about injuries and the, uh, the treatment that's done. Um, and I've, you know, typically I've seen this where we focus almost on the wrong thing when it comes to the safety program, right? We we focus on the number instead of on the potential, on the risks associated with these injuries. And when that happens, we tend to to have this relationship where it's, you know, we send somebody as to go get an injury and then we want to go and argue with somebody who's highly trained in this on how we think they should be treating them. I think that's where I've seen it go sideways. So I think that it absolutely needs to be a highly collaborative relationship, right? There's no doubt that they coexist at a bare minimum, right? So 
and I think it's a mutually beneficial relationship between occupational health and EHS, because just as EHS uh, professionals or industrial hygienists are not the expert in the medical side of the house in the care of the employee, the occupational health professionals still need the good data, right? They, they need the information that is job related that helps them come to the conclusions on the medical side that they're coming to. But I also think going the other direction, sometimes the occupational health professionals are seeing some of the trends long before EHS is seeing them, right? Because they, they may see a trend in shoulder injuries or they may see a trend in a specific work task that is causing an issue long before EHS sees it with that kind of focus. And so then I think that it's really important that the two um, are collaborating together for a good outcome. I also agree there's pros and cons to having them together and to having them apart, <laughs> right? So is there one right answer? I don't know. I, I am not gonna pretend to know. And I think that's probably culture specific. I think it's probably industry specific, company specific, right? Because I think it can work both ways, but I do think that there has to be some very clear boundaries so that everybody is staying in their lane and that they're working together and that they don't let it become a relationship that is, um, Contentious is not the right word. That's that's not the terminology I want to use, but one one that certainly you want to make sure that it continues to be mutually beneficial. So I don't know if the structure necessarily matters as long as you go into it with the lens of this is how it needs to be in order for this to work. Now, from a pros and cons perspective, if you just want some pros and cons, we talked about some of the pros, right? They have to work very closely together. They should work very closely together um, because they each have a piece of the puzzle that's necessary to keep that, that uh, worker safe and healthy and at work. So that's probably the biggest pro. From my seat in the ballpark, one of the things to consider about keeping them apart, not necessarily that it's good, bad, or indifferent, or that I'm advocating for one over the other, but if you're looking at one of the pros for separating them, I think it's, um, it, it's good to have a little bit of separation of church and state, if you will, <laughs> right? It's a good checks and balance. So you have eyes over here on injuries and outcomes and recordability. You have eyes over here on the occupational side on injuries, on compensability, on recordability, right? And, and I think it's just a good checks and balance system. The other piece to that is what I talked about earlier in the occupational health isn't only focused on employees that are injured in the workplace. It's also getting them back to work after they have cancer, per se, or they have some other sort of 
personal chronic illness that they're trying to be back at work, be productive, be successful. So there is some overlap um, that on that side that EHS wouldn't necessarily have a hand in per se. But sometimes that can get lost in the shuffle when it's all combined together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, think that you're right there. I, I like the, the church and state separation analogy because, you know, I, I don't think that one should roll up to the other. It's like, I don't think health services should report to EHS. I don't think EHS should report to health services. Um, I think that there's, there's benefits to having report to a common manager, but I, I also like what you said, where there's got to be some pretty strict boundaries when you do that, because then you do get the bleeding, you get almost the influencing of one to do something um, in a way that maybe that that isn't the the best way of doing it, right? Both from an EHS side, both from an occupational health service side. Um, I think that as the future goes on too, though, we're going to see a trend towards kind of bringing them closer together, especially as we start talking about total worker health and, um, you know, the exposures at home affecting what you do at work and trying to control those risks. That's, that's definitely, um, an area that I see getting bigger and bigger and the health services, I'm just going to call it health services, but, you know, occupational health departments there, I, I can kind of see them beginning to move kind of closer um, closer together. Well, I think there's absolutely um, an expectation at this point that you can't sit in your own silo, right? There, there is an expectation that your occupational health professionals know the work, they know some safety, they know how to be proactive, they can play an active role in that. Um, and I think that goes back to your point of bringing them closer together, right? There's an expectation that they're partnering together and that they're going out together and that they're looking at things together and that they're coming to conclusions together and making a plan together. I think that's all goodness. That's that's absolutely the way that it should be because everybody is bringing their level of expertise to the to the table. And that's when you get the best result. And it's the best result for the employee and hopefully the best result long-term for the company overall, right? Because generally you're you're rarely making a decision that's only affecting that one single employee in that moment. Yeah. I, I think, think that's, that's been, been a theme kind of through part of this podcast too, that we've been trying to show is that EHS can't be siloed. Um, and one, one of the reasons, reasons that we were looking at all these different aspects, aspects including this aspect, is to kind of show people that the amount of synergy that goes across all of the business. And I, I absolutely, you know, I agree with you. I think we need to we need to find opportunities to to bring in these um, these departments with with these uh, you know skills to all work towards the betterment both of worker health and to help the business along as well, because the business is nothing without its workers, right? So what do you think, Jed? I agree. <clears throat> I can anticipate a question based off an occupational health professional that looks at more often than not treating the employee to say that 
occupational health professionals are simply looking at what has happened. Kirsten, how, in your experience and the knowledge that you have to bring to the table and, and the people that you've helped, um, how, how does the occupational health nurse provide input on the proactive side, even in the midst of treating people? Because I can, I can almost sense, well, you know, occupational health nurses, you know, look, it's already happened. You know, we're, we're sending our people to you just to treat them, get them back on the floor. How does the occupational health nurse help the proactive side of the business when it comes to risk reduction and, you know, long-term benefit for the employee and thus the business? Sure. So I would tell you in nursing, we learn to treat the whole person, right? And part of that, and a huge part of that is education, right? And so while we may be seeing someone for an injury or something very minor, at the end of the day, our goal is to educate them, educate them, educate them, and then go beyond that. And then maybe it's educating our EHS friends, or maybe it's educating the supervisors, or maybe it's educating, you know, our, our tooling people. I mean, it, it, it's an endless list, but at the end of the day, they're taking that bit of information that they have, and then they're using their, their skill set to go out and educate to prevent further occurrences, whether it's, whether it's, uh, preventing that employee from being injured worse, or whether that's keeping the next 10 people from being injured in the same manner. Some of the things we've done beyond that too is, um, you know, in our environment, our physician would go out on the floor. I would partner regularly with our ergonomist and we would go out and we would take a look at work and I would bring my medical perspective to the table while she brought her ergonomic perspective to the table. And we talked about what makes sense for both to make sure that when we were creating a solution to help someone or to help a group of people or to create, you know, an engineering solution, that it made sense long-term from both perspectives and we were considering both aspects. So there's a lot of prevention that goes on from the occupational health side. I just think people don't always recognize that, right? I mean, it's, um, you're a nurse, you're there to treat the injury and, and yes, that's part of it, but it's certainly not even the biggest part of it. No, that's great. It was total lead in question. I already, you know, have an opinion on the matter and it probably, or it, it does mirror yours, but you know, I can I can anticipate it. Trust me. the The questions, the the or the opinions that uh, you know we're just going to relegate relegate occupational health into this little dark corner, and you know I'll, I'll use you when I need you kind of thing versus what you just said, and that's where it needs to be. Well, and I would say there's an added benefit when an organization is fortunate enough to have their occupational health on site. Oh, right? yeah, my because, goodness. Because when you look at occupational health in general, right, there's two models. You could have it on site or you could have an off site model that you contract, right, with someone to send your care out. Certainly, not that prevention, the prevention can't happen in that environment. It's more difficult, right? They're not out there dealing with the same people all day, every day, seeing the work content passing them in the hall saying, 
hey, how's your injury doing? And oh, by the way, did you get your flu shot? <laughs> right? So it's that total worker health that you are talking about and making sure that we are looking at the whole person. It just happens to be in the work environment, but certainly there is um, um, much more opportunity when you're co-located on site. I 100% agree with that too. And it- it's it's not that you can't make it. I you're absolutely right. It is a lot harder, and part of the reason it is a lot harder is because you're not their only clients when you go off site. It's not like, you know, that they don't have other people coming in. Um, where you land on their priority will really drive how much, um, I guess, how much love you get from them. Um, now we've in my past we've actually brought some of them on site and tried to. Um, to get them to, to to know the workforce, but at the end of the day, you know they're not there all the time. And when you really need them, you have to schedule them to come in. They're not going to stop at the middle of a of you know some sort of a, a medical evaluation of somebody else from a different company because you want something. Where if they're on site, you typically you have a bigger staff, and if one person's tied up, you can always get somebody else to come out there. Um, and I, I and there is something to be said about. Um, talking to people, <clears throat> excuse me, there is something to be said about talking to people. And Jed has brought this up too. You know, you got to get out there. You have to, you have to engage. Uh, people aren't always going to come to you and, and say something, not be, you know, not necessarily they're avoiding you, but you know, they're busy. We're all busy going out there and engaging them in conversation, asking them one question, which leads into another. You, you get to find out a lot more. You can't just sit behind your desk. You know, you've got to get out there and see what's going on. Do you, so to, 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 to come off of that, Kirsten, do you think the best occupational health nurses are more, I don't even know what I want to say here. I was going to say that they're, are they more clinician in their approach? But the, the, the point here I'm trying to make is off of Justin's comment that he just made you know, you take the clinic to the floor. You don't leave the clinic in the clinic. You know, you, you get out there. Yes, I, I would agree with that, right? So <clears throat> the, the best occupational health professionals are going to go to the people and meet them where they're at and understand their education needs to start there, right? Because where you're at with how you feel about something or what you think about something in the workplace may be very different than where I'm at with it. And I may need a totally different type of education and it's understanding how to adjust to that. But at the end of the day, we're all people. And if the occupational health professionals go out and they talk to the people and they show interest in what they're doing, Show me how you build that. Show me the postures you're using. Show me the tools, right? People are excited to show them, right? They're proud of the work they do. They want to show them what they do. And that opens that door, A, for the start of that relationship, right? So they can continue having those conversations. And B, to understand really what the work entails and then how to help them make it better. Mm, That's awesome. That's so good. It's all about relationships. Because agree. you're trusting, you're trusting those workers to come to you when they're not feeling well, when they're at their worst, when they need help um, with changing something that maybe they don't know what the answer is. They just know 
that maybe it's not working for them, right? And so unless you have taken the time to really understand that and build those relationships, and not only with, with the workers, but the supervisors, the HR business partners, the EHS professionals, right? All of your resources, your tooling resources, your ergonomists, whatever resources that you have available to you, you have to have those relationships build in order to help the employees long-term. Yeah, and I would say that's not unique to health services either. I mean, that that's every, yeah. You know, EHS professionals, we have to do the same thing or we won't be successful. Um, It's very well said. And I think people want to feel like they're part of the solution at the end of the day. We don't give them enough credit in that. They have, right. They have to be. Yeah. And honestly, they have the best ideas, (laughs) right? Because they're the ones doing it all day, every day. So they often have the best ideas. We just all have to stop and pause and take the time to ask. Yeah, Justin and I make this point routinely on this show and in the midst of our own practice as far as us in the field. If you're not engaging the worker and you're not getting their ideas, the program will never go as far as it could or it should. You have to engage them. Yeah. Now, we want to engage our workers. What happens when one of two people tell you, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's right. We're not doing that treatment. Let's look at the more dirty side just to, you know, just to give the, the experience to the listeners out here. What if there is a CIH, a CSP, you know, EHS guy or gal out there uh, says, ah, we we can't treat it that, that way. Or I don't think that's the right treatment profile or the employee who says, you know, I'm not doing that. Um, I don't think that happens probably as much on the employee side, but I'm sure it, maybe it's happened over the years. I'm just curious to what your thoughts are. It does happen. Um, not often. And when it happens, it happens for different reasons, right? So sometimes they're worried about the effect their injury is going to have on their team, for instance, right? Particularly recordability. Employees are very well versed in that. They know. Right. So sometimes they'll they'll come up with some interesting ideas for how uh, their treatment could go to avoid that. Right. And so in all cases, regardless of where it's coming from, it comes back to that education. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the goal is to take care of the employee. And we have to remember that. <laughs> right. Our goal is 100 percent to take care of the employee. The rest of it is just all fallout. Right. So it's it's education. And yes, this soft support might work fine. However, here's why it doesn't work in this case. And let's talk through that. Right. Um, But it comes back to education. At the end of the day, the healthcare professional has an obligation to provide appropriate and prudent care. And it's rarely one single thing that decides a treatment protocol, right? So you can't say in 
I'm making this up. In every case of carpal tunnel, we're going to follow this prescription X, Y, and Z. Because has that person been having symptoms for three days or three months? Are they totally healthy and have no other underlying conditions or do they have five other chronic conditions that you're combating at the same time, right? So rarely is it as easy as if this, then that. You have to listen to the, to the individual that's hurt. And then a lot of times, like I said, it's just educating the others and sometimes the employee too on yeah, that's a great idea, but in this particular case, because of X, Y, and Z, whatever that is, this is what we need to do. Uh, yeah. Does it make everybody happy 100% of the time? Probably not. So the the spot where I've seen this get a little contentious is typically around meta, um, you know, prescriptions, right? Because OSHA has that the one rule, the treatment beyond first aid, and they give very specific amounts for ibuprofen, and um, that's the one I could think of. There's there's other ones in there, but um, you know how how do we how do we do that? Because I have seen some doctors, you know prescribe 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. And I've seen others say, just take two ibuprofen, go buy some over the counter. Like, how do you, have you ever encountered that? And kind of what do you do on this, in those circumstances? Yeah. I mean, it happens, right? I mean, we're, we're healthcare providers. And at the end of the day, sometimes we just forget and we just treat like we would be treating. Now, is it, better to have somebody take two ibuprofen more often than taking 800 milligrams three times a day? Not necessarily, (laughs) right? But will somebody be more compliant if they only have to take it three times a day versus taking it six times a day? Perhaps. And at the end of the day, if you're going through the history with them, and compliance is a concern, then that may be the direction that you go and it's not necessarily wrong. And I think that's what we have to remember again is that there is not one single right or wrong way. Your clinicians are not out there to, you know, write everybody prescriptions and, you know, give everybody rigid splints and restrictions. And at the end of the day, they have to look at the full picture along with the history, along with the risk factors, and then provide the treatment that's best for the employee in that moment. Now, do we ever screw it up? Sure we do, (laughs) right? I mean, sometimes we do. Could we have used something that was less invasive than what we chose? Sometimes that happens. But I would like to think for the most part, as long as prudent care is being provided, I'm going to tell you it's not incorrect care. Yeah. So let me let me ask you it uh, uh, this way: How do you how do you feel about um, EHS and the clinician kind of sitting down and going through what the recordability requirements are? Like, how do you feel about the doctors understanding that part of OSHA, or should we just completely keep it separate? Well, so I think if. If you have occupational health providers, they need to have an understanding of OSHA. Now, 
having an understanding of OSHA and allowing the OSHA regulations or the OSHA standards to dictate the way they provide treatment are two different things, right? So while I think it's perfectly acceptable and, and really preferable to have everybody sit down and, and educate the occupational health team on the OSHA recordability standards for medical care and first aid, because I think those are important and I think it's important when it comes to documentation so that EHS can easily ascertain, okay, is this or is this not something that we need to record? Right, so there's an element, even if you take the medical treatment out of it, just from the basic understanding so that when it's communicated, it's very clear on, on what we need to do or not. Um, I just, but I think it stops at that, right? It, and it needs to stop there. So having that education, making sure they understand it, going through those lists is perfectly fine. I think you have to be very careful when you cross that boundary of trying to tell your occupational health providers how to practice medicine. Yeah. That gets kind of sticky. Yeah, I'm sure it does. So I'm, I'm, I have a, a series of questions here to kind of carry this on just because I'm, I'm curious of more discussion on this. Specifically for any of our listeners who are senior leadership higher leadership within the business. This is kind of aimed, this next little, I intend this next little section of discussion really aimed at you guys and gals who are senior leadership, you know, very, very high up. So Kirsten, I think that the, the, the big protective factor, as far as I can tell, should be um, for what you just mentioned, as far as not, crossing the line of dictating medical treatment is what it takes to be a board state licensed healthcare professional. You're not going to mess with that. You're not going to screw with that. You let the health professionals be health professionals. But now here's, here's where the interesting part comes or, or the discussion I think can come. How do you help senior leadership because here, here's the divide for me that I can see. There is either a focus on the financial outcome or a focus on the patient outcome. And I don't think patient outcomes can be the sole objectifier in looking at medical treatment. There are some medical treatments that just have to be done that aren't going to necessarily result in either good patient outcomes or patient experience outcomes and looking at those metrics. But I think there's a clear divide and there's, there's some happy medium in here that the senior leader, I think that the senior leadership needs to understand between the financial outcome and the patient outcome. Cause I get the sense from what I'm just, well, from what I just heard you saying, the occupational health folks are really focusing more on the patient outcomes. I mean, we'll treat what we treat to make sure that the total health is taken care of, but how do you balance those two between patient and financial outcomes? Well, sure. I mean, I think when you, and I probably wasn't clear on that, so I'm actually glad you brought it up, but I think when you sit on site for a company, right, your goal has 
a twofold goal. You, you always, and actually, let me back up. As a healthcare provider, even in the community, I would hope that we are striving towards providing excellent patient care that's also cost-effective. Yeah. yeah. Right? And sometimes that means having that conversation with your patient that just stepped in a hold today and swears they need an MRI, a CAT scan, and you know, a cast up to their hip and telling them the body is a wondrous thing. And if you give it a couple weeks and you take a few over-the-counter ibuprofen, you're probably going to be just fine. And we'll check you again and we'll make sure, right? That <laughs> yeah. is the same conversation that occurs, whether it's with your patient and whether it's in a work environment or whether it's in the community and your senior leaders, because at the end of the day, it needs to still be excellent patient care in a cost-effective manner. Yeah. yeah. Period. Well said. <laughs> I think, yeah, uh, that's, that's so good. And uh, so I appreciate the clarification because I think it, admittedly, it, it it just happens. It, it and I don't even say it happens to their detriment or to try to pour dirt on our leadership, but um, I mean that they are responsible for the business, and the business exists to make money. And so they're always going to be looking, I think, at times or maybe too many times, at the financial outcome versus saying, "Well, what does this patient actually need in totality?" There's not just a scan a bandage, a surgical procedure, whatever it might be. There, there is everything that you just talking about is the education behind all this, the time and the care taken, and then taking that into, you know, really prevention. I mean, lessons have to be learned. That's a part of life. We hope that, uh, alongside of lower order incidents because of proper risk reduction, education, Lessons can be learned through education from the healthcare providers, from the safety professionals, from the industrial hygienists to say, this could have been a lot worse. Let's correct our workplaces, our behaviors, and our risk strategies versus, oh no, you know, this, this person just had an amputation. This person was, you know, even so far as we tried to save him or her and could not. You know, those are the kinds of lessons that we don't want to learn and people still unfortunately learn them. But a senior leader and, and, and everybody really, because you'd said this, we're, we're all human beings. We should be focusing on the longer I'm in this, I, I, I think there is a greater, there should be a greater focus on patient outcomes, but I think the way you said it is good. You know, it's the highest order care at the most cost sensible approach. Because I, I would also go ahead. I was just going to say, and I think that's the best you can do. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the best you can do. And I wouldn't expect a senior leader to spend their time. They should be focused on the finances of the business. That's their job. That's their goal. Right. It's yeah, my yeah. job to provide excellent patient care in a cost-effective manner and to educate when necessary. Hmm. 
I would mm. say that that's same goes through EHS, and we've we've talked about that prior too. You know, we we have to have this mindset that what everything that we do affects the business in some way. That's not to say that we sh- you know we don't provide excellent compliance. I guess maybe is the best way to say it from EHS <laughs> perspective, right? But we need to, we need to recognize that everything that we do does have a business impact, and we would be foolish not to at least do our best to 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 balance those so that, you know, we're not getting people thrown in jail, but we're also not shutting the company down. Um, and I think the same thing is, is it's almost exactly the same as what you're saying here too. Sure. And that, you know, on the occupational health side, part of that, um, in addition to providing high quality care, that's cost effective. Part of it is also having the skill set to be able to take a great history and really understand mechanism of injury, how it relates to the work environment and making sure that it's getting covered under the right bucket. You want them to get excellent care regardless of where they seek it or how they seek it. But it's important also to understand which bucket it goes in and make sure that you're getting that right as much of the time as you can do that. highest quality care that's cost effective i'm under the uh the this part this point in my life i'm under the conviction that no health system all health systems are trying to go after three things and none of them can do that Uh, quality uh, cost and universality all of them try to do it all three, but none of them can can position uh, more than two. So if you want universal health care that's cheap, it's going to suck. It's not going to have any quality. If you want high quality health care that is not universal, that it's site specific, so to speak, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, so any way you chop this up from what I've seen, uh, you're never gonna, you're never gonna get all three of those, but you're gonna have to make it a decision on which which of the two you really want. And I would rather to have high quality, cost effective healthcare while sacrificing universality. That's probably not gonna go on the show. I'm just, you know, we're talking about healthcare here. <laughs> but I would tell you, so I would tell you, healthcare in general is broken, right? The system for how we um, reward our providers is broken, okay? We don't pay providers. We don't reimburse providers for spending the time on the education and the prevention. We pay them to do more stuff, to write more prescriptions, order more tests, right? The more stuff they do, the more they make per patient. In occupational health, you're in a bit of a unique position in that I don't make any more money if I order 25 tests or if I order no tests, right? The other unique opportunity that I have in that environment is that if I have somebody that's got a back injury, for instance, and they're very anxious, I can see that person every single day 
to follow up with them to see how they're doing. Aside from when you, when you have that type of event in the community, your provider's gonna see them one time. They're probably gonna write them a script, maybe order some physical therapy and push them out the door because they're probably not gonna see them again, right? We are in the unique position that we can provide excellent care. We can let the body do what the body does best, which is heal itself with time and patience and the right type of rest and, and care. And we can do those frequent follow-ups and I'm not seeing people or my providers aren't seeing people saying, I have to see 30 people today and I have to order as many tests as I can order, right? We can sit back and oftentimes we don't order the x-rays or the MRIs until way down the road because it's not really necessary. We can give people the appropriate time to heal, then determine whether or not that type of intervention is necessary, which then increase the cost. So I would argue it's much easier in the occupational setting to provide high quality, cost-effective universal type care than it will ever be in the community setting. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying, and I I, I think it's it's good logic. Um, but I can say if it does happen, it, it's going to be one of those. As far as talking about public health or public health care, not public health, but public health care, one of those three things is going to be sacrificed. It has always been sacrificed, and I think there is a clear one to sacrifice above the other two. But that's personal opinion. why people flock to this country to get their care or at least those who can afford it but the interesting thing about that is for um, developed countries we're actually at the bottom for outcomes our outcomes yeah. are not that great in the grand scheme of things yeah I, i've so i've read studies that have said that and i and and, and there's nothing to agree about i mean it's just what it is but i've also seen those studies bookended with severe or specialized treatments, we are actually some of the highest. So it's, it's, you have to, you know, there, there's a whole big picture to look at in there. So. Healthcare. Um, that's one of those topics we could talk about for 12 hours. You know, we spend the majority of our healthcare money at the end of life. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could go on and on about that. I don't think anybody would disagree that the healthcare system is broken. <laughs> I love that I'm in occupational health and I don't have to worry about those things. I mean, I do have to worry about those things, but not on a day-to-day -day basis. That's not fair to say I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to worry about them. I don't have the same concerns that my peers that are providers in the community has. Hmm. What else do you want to talk about, Justin? I, I honestly, I think we covered everything I wanted to talk about. Um, I, I thought it was a fantastic discussion. <laughs> to tell you the truth, it was. Uh, you know, I, I honestly don't have any other points. We covered all of it. Do you have anything else, Jed? Um, I mean, 
we talked about you know what occupational health is. We talked plenty about integration of it, which was really good, really good points, Kirsten, uh, and just how the EHS professionals out there can benefit um, and should be benefiting from those folks. Uh, I specifically wanted to ask about patient outcome versus financial outcome. We had plenty of good talk around that. Um, this isn't this isn't episode worthy, but just real quick, we don't have to talk about it long because we're pretty much done here. We'll close up. But what what are your personal thoughts about industrial hygienists, specifically CIHs, being labeled as occupational health professionals? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not one either either <laughs> of them. So Fire I away. don't know that. I don't know that I have ever heard them lumped in with occupational health professionals. So, I suppose you could, I could argue that either way. So what, what I'll tell you is that from, especially American Industrial Hygiene Association, there's been this push to redefine what industrial hygiene is because it doesn't clearly envelop what we do. And so they're really moving it over to occupational health professional. Um, because they they feel that's more in line with um, with what we're doing on a day to day basis when it comes to exposures when it comes to you know monitoring. So that I that I think that's where the genesis of that question is coming from. Yeah. So you know I could see it both ways. So I think IH has that. Um, <sighs> I don't want to say it's it's unique that crossover right, touches on the health a bit um, with some of what they do. I would argue ergonomics might fall into that as well or could fall into that, right? Though they typically are looking at bigger picture, um, they they do a lot of individual health-related work. So could you lump them into occupational health professionals? Perhaps. Do I think that nurses and doctors have the corner on the market? I, I'm indifferent to that. Um, I don't have any uh, strong feelings one way or the other, and I'm certainly not possessive over that language. So yeah. you would be okay if, if somebody came up to me and said that I was an occupational health professional? Do you feel like you're an occupational health professional? I barely feel like I'm a professional. So, no. <laughs> so the so where my mind goes all all the time um, is nineteen ten ten twenty, uh, and a few and if a little bit down in, in into the definition. So that that section has to do with access of access and then interpretation of uh, medical employee records, employee medical records, and they they clearly define health professional means a physician. Occupational health nurse, industrial hygienist, toxicologist, epidemiologist, providing medical or other occupational health services to exposed employees. My biggest beef with that, because here's the thing, a large part of me would love to go back to school for something like occupational health nursing or 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 an MP program uh, because there, there is such a specific worldview outside of work about helping people and wanting to do, do those things that I think it would be a good fit for me personally. But here's the thing. When I look at that, even hopefully when I become a CIH here shortly, 
you know, officially after I passed the exam, you look at those, those folks and that definition, the physician, the nurse, the toxicologist, the epidemiologist, all of those people, except for the industrial hygienist are required to pass state licensures. Like there, there are so many more state focused and then a historic, I mean, time involved in saying, this is what a, a true health professional who is administering healthcare is and does and is responsible for and is competent in. I'm not saying industrial hygienists are not competent. Trust me, I wish I could be labeled that. I will never call myself that because when you look at that list, it is clear. In my opinion, there's a huge chasm difference between true health professionals and industrial hygienists. It's just personal opinion. I'm really convicted on it, but I don't see them in the same ball game. So I think maybe maybe I am not as convicted on that as you are. I think I think what you said is fair, right? And it's true. But I would argue that even within healthcare professionals, there's different levels, right? So you would call a certified nurse's assistant, a CNA, a health professional, but at the end of the day, that individual still lumped into the same category that the nurses and doctors are, different requirements and different skill set. Is one more important than the other? No, not necessarily, right? And the, I guess the other piece to that as a as a nurse and as a nurse practitioner for many years. I've I've been trumped by has a doctor looked at that? Okay, really? Because I'm licensed. I've had to take the boards. I have full practice authority. I can write prescriptions. I can make a diagnosis. Why does a doctor need to look at that? So I think <laughs> probably for my seat in the ballpark, because that's happened so many times over the years right? We just need a doctor's signature on that. We Has the doctor looked at that? I think I probably am less concerned with title because that rubs me wrong as what are you bringing to the table? And if your skill set is valid, I don't care what they call you. Just do what you do best and bring your expertise. But it's the same reason, but I'm also not that pretentious. Same reason I don't go by doctor. Could mm -hmm. I? Sure. I could sign my stuff, you know, Dr. Camp. One time I've been called Dr. Camp, and that was when I did jury duty, and the judge called me Dr. Camp. Made me feel horribly uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not who I am. <laughs> so, so, sure. you, so you realize you've just given me free reign to call you Dr. Camp every time we talk, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those things, right? Like, it's just to me, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you bring your expertise. I can see where it has an occupational health relationship. You know, we're not calling um, industrial hygiene doctors. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not crossing those lines of professionalism. So I guess to me, I am not as passionate about, about whether or not they fit into that category. Yeah. My biggest, my biggest mark or a line of demarcation, if I can rephrase my position, because, you know, I appreciate what you said, is when you look at those, you, when you look at that list of folks, it just, it bugs me that there isn't, a, a, anybody can go sit for that exam and and call themselves a CIH. And I mean, they have to go take the test, right? They, there's, you know, they claim there's all this stuff, but there's no, there's no protection for them. 
You know, you can't just walk into a hospital just because you've taken an exam and practice medicine. You have to go through the state. And I'm not arguing for like Big Brother here. I'm just saying I wish I wish industrial hygiene was a little bit more respected in the field and protected and forced to go through that because I think it would elevate. It would elevate the practice and then obviously the the inclusion of that into uh, occupational health or, or, or really just occupational injury and illness prevention overall. I, I, I wish I there was more there. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think certainly um, it would help the credibility overall, right? If you want to lump it into that category, but is it make or break for me? At this point, and with what I do, I would say no, but I'm coming at it from a different perspective because I've worked with Justin and I've worked with some very good IHs and they're incredibly knowledgeable and helpful to things that are filling in gaps for me, mm -hmm. right? So that's what's important to me. I don't really care what you're called. I don't really care. I mean, I do care in ergonomics. That's a whole nother discussion. I think taking one class in ergonomics does not make you an ergonomist. That bothers me a great deal, but that is not the same path that industrial hygiene is. There is a curriculum. There is a test you have to pass to be certified, right? So I guess I maybe struggle with it a little more on some of those other things than I do with one that I at least know there's a full on curriculum that you have to take and pass. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, I kind of, I understand where, where, where Jed's coming from with this too, because I would not equate my skill set anywhere near um, a true healthcare professional when it comes to diagnosis at all. Um, air sampling, maybe. Yeah, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm not sure the term occupational health professional means diagnosis and treatment. I think there's some assumptions being made there. Yeah. I th and, and that part that, um, that Jed read out of OSHA, which you said it was, um, uh, 1020. That's the access to the employee exposure and medical records. Yeah. So from a, from an exposure, if, and I, I honestly, you need to look closer at that, but from trying to, to get access to medical records, I think an industrial hygienist would be foolish to take that, those records on their own without talking to a peer in the health field. And I, I've done this many times. I mean, Kirsten, how many times have I called you and say, hey, can I run this by you? Because something is just not adding up. You know, I, I, I never take that information and run. And I think that um, I think knowing your boundaries is important anytime that you're certified, anytime that it does not that it's anytime you hold any type of designation, you need to understand where you fall and where your knowledge and skill set falls in there. Sure, it's part and, of ethics. Yeah. And just make sure that you don't. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with all of that. But I think sometimes we take, we, we want to paint a broad brush, right? So I would argue as a nurse practitioner, Justin, if I came to you and I said, I need you to go out and look at this because this employee's chromium is X, Y, Z. Okay. Yeah. That's part of the medical record. <laughs> that doesn't mean you need to be in the medical record 
digging around for what their whole history is. But at the end of the day, I am providing you medical information to do your job. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So I think sometimes we paint it with such a broad brush. Now, if you came to me and said, well, I need to take a look at, you know, Bob's medical record, I'd probably tell you to go pound salt because right? I'm pretty protective of who has access to that. But if I need to give you a piece of medical data in order for you to do your job and to provide me information back, that's still medical record. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. Fair? Yeah. Yeah. Or if I come to you and say, hey, by the way, Bob, um, he's he's green right now. Uh, he, I don't think he's come to see you yet, but you may want to test him. You may want to check Bob out. Bob's pretty sick. Yes. So I think it depends on your definition of health. Yeah. I think it depends on your definition of medical record. I don't think that you have to necessarily exclude IH from that list, but there is a boundary there. Right. So your access isn't going to be the same as my access, nor would your interpretation be the same as my interpretation on most things when it comes to the medical piece. Yeah. I don't know if OSHA intended this or not, but I, I get the sense that they've already put the boundary in there, or at least I interpret that they did. So the boundary for me is that the IH, even the say the, the, the EHS folks, we focus, we care about the employee by focusing on the exposure. The, the, the true health professional cares about the employee by focusing on the patient outcome. And then we work together, as you said, about educating one another, specifically aimed at the employee, to reduce risk and the chance of occupational injury or illness. So it's, it's, probably, it's probably more than likely two sides of the same coin. You know, it's heart, brains, lungs, heart, uh, stomach, they all do different jobs, but they're all needed to be alive. So they're all crucial. Yes. Well, that was a lot of fun and certainly educational for us. So first and foremost, Kirsten, we do thank you for coming on to the show and helping us understand more about occupational health and how it relates to EHS. We talked a lot about occupational health in this episode, and I think it came down to really three big areas for us. So the occupational health professionals are most concerned with providing the highest quality care while still being cost effective for the business. We, you know, we, we work and move and live in these businesses, but it's ultimately about these people that work in these businesses. So there is so much benefit that can be had with the EHS folks and all the EHS listeners out there, you know, listen up now and again collaborate with these folks. Find these occupational health professionals and learn from them. Be educated yourself with these folks. Get in the uh, in the mix and get your hands dirty with them as far as is able, obviously, with healthcare here, but learn from them so that we can better protect the employee. Because as Kirsten said multiple times, and we certainly agree here on the show, you know, you're really after the relationships at work and looking into fostering those relationships so that you can help the employees understand that, look, it's not just about the clock. It's not just about hitting the time card. It's what we take home as well and what we bring back into work. And uh, this, this idea that there can be so much more of a better practice 
handled and administered by EHS professionals by working with our occupational health professionals is uh, was certainly a delight to talk about. So again, Kirsten, thank you for being on and helping us silly safety folks get a better idea of what we should be doing probably in this area. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, folks, well, thanks for tuning in to For the Love of Safety once again. Be looking forward to our next episode real soon. And there you have it, folks. Thanks for tuning in to For the Love of Safety. You may always reach out to either Justin or Jed by email at ForTheLoveOfSafety at gmail.com. That's the number four, the love of safety at gmail.com. Health and safety is fun. It's frustrating, but it is so rewarding. We'll see you again soon here at For the Love of Safety.